and that's all just so she'll be excited i hope so just be like hey here's a here's an audio file that's a little bit better than two tin cans and a string have fun All right, everybody, welcome back to Girls Talk Comics. This is just Aaron today, no Jess, but we do have a surprise guest. I suppose it's our lovely friend who we have affectionately dubbed Doctora, I think is how we've even said your name a few times on here. Just to oh, no. It. Yeah, yeah, you're named. We you summoned me. Yeah, so Doctora... Just to give a little background, um, I met you when I started working at the local comic shop. Does that not feel like an eternity ago now? It does. <laughs> we, you and I have aged exponentially in the in the four years hence. I'd like to think we aged like wine, though. So, yeah. like expensive wine, not not like the the Trader Joe's <laughs> wine that goes back. <laughs> Not like Yellowtail? Yeah, yeah. We are a little bit... No offense to Yellowtail, but yeah. Mind you, right. yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm a fine connoisseur of the of, of the box wines as well myself. <laughs> if I didn't have a bottle of cheap wine in my apartment, I'd probably have a... It'd be a problem. But Aura, you've been a nerd all your life. All you of also knew Jess from... Gosh, how did you guys even meet? Oh, that's a that's a complicated story that would take up your whole format here. It's uh, the school is the short answer. We'll go with the short answer because there's <laughs> there's so much about you that we could talk about. Well, we it's short circuits from a friend of a friend, uh, of you a know, friend. through yeah, through I, a thing. But it, I love it that you up. just collect other people's friends, <laughs> orphans. That's yeah, I think you're the prime reason i've met God, a lot of people whenever i move to town you're a good you're a central hub for most of the people i know there was a book i read a long time ago called urban tribes and it talked about social networking in a very rudimentary way that involved hubs and spokes mm-hmm. and when i was reading about the hubs i was like oh my gosh like this your book hub. understands me yeah yeah, yeah definitely so- hub Kind of on, I guess, the reading note, you have your PhD, thus Doctora, and it's in American Studies, and you focused a lot on the comic industry, specifically, if I remember correctly, and hopefully in a simple way, kind of on how that contracting works on a kind of a job sense. Yeah, uh, economics. I, fo- I really focused on the work for hire aspect of it. The is, oh boy, my, my, my dissertation in like two minutes, right? So real quickly, I guess, let me, let me thank you for allowing me into your, into your clubhouse here. I have no business being here, but I appreciate it. Uh, My dissertation, how this, how this went down. So I knew that I wanted to do my master's thesis was on orphans and I did a bunch of textual analysis on orphans and comic books. Oh. And and I knew that I wanted to do something different for my dissertation because I jokingly said for my master's that everybody in my master's program studied the saddest things and I didn't want to study sad things. So I went I went the route of comic books and my advisor at the time, she spitballed me a couple of things involving comic books that might be interesting. And I, I ended up picking orphans. 
That's uh, also a very sad thing, by the well, way. Well, <laughs> it turned out as I started reading and as I started to get involved, because uh, in order to study fictional orphans, you kind of have to look into real orphans. A little bit, and, one would think. And so I ended up studying the saddest thing, really. Uh, you know, yes. like, and I was like, ah, gosh, dang it. I, d- I don't want to do that again. I don't want the sad <laughs> thing. So I, so when I was doing my PhD, I'm like, I'm going to study something more upbeat. I'm going to, you know, do this. And so I started. So you picked economics. Well, hang on. (laughs) It gets there. (laughs) So, so I, uh, so I studied, I wanted to do family vacations. Okay. And the problem was that the department that accepted me didn't really have a specialist in that Mm. or, or anything even close. You know, I ended up kind of asking around, seeing if somebody would take my take my project on and and uh, got no bites. So the chair of the department, you know, sat me down one day and had the talk with me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, look, like we accepted you here because you study comic books, do comic books. And I'm like, man, I don't want to go out on the job market and be the comic book guy. I don't want to, like, you know, pigeonhole myself into this thing. Like, I already did that, like, and I liked it. It was fun. You know, I know all about it. I don't, you know, and she's like, so do it again. Just do the trick that you do well. And I was like, all right. So what I, you know, sort of, I sat down with it for a couple of months and kind of, you know, decided a a number of different things, you know, among them, I was like, I don't want to do another textual analysis because I did do text already. I want to study people. Mm -hmm. And so what I really thought I wanted to do at that time was study the printers, like the actual maker, like hands in the ink makers of, and I don't know why I thought that was a good idea because the the people who print these things are just people who print stuff for a living. Right. Like they don't care if yeah. it's a comic book or a calendar. So, so I, I was like, okay, well, never mind. <laughs> That's not, <laughs> Uh, that's not going to work. So, you know, I ended up in the creative side. And when I started to sort of deep dive into the creators, I found this sort of inherent in what I perceived of rather as inherent injustice in the industry, which are these work for hire contracts Mm -hmm. Uh, for the people who don't know what a work for hire contract is. This basically means you create something for somebody else and they, you know, they pay you a flat fee and they maintain all of the rights and all of the exclusivities yeah. on all of it. So if somebody writes, uh, you know, they create a character, you know, whole cloth for Marvel. And these are this is how Marvel, DC and several other companies sort of work is through these work for hire contracts. It ends up such that Marvel and DC end up owning that thing and you got your, you know, hundred dollars for creating that thing, you know, eight years ago. So if they end up making a billion dollar franchise out of it, you still got your hundred bucks. Thank you. Have a nice day. So I I was like, okay, I'm going to go into the industry and I'm going to like fight for, I'm going to be a standard bearer for the little guy. And I'm going to go in here and I'm going to write this dissertation and eventually it's going to become a book and it's going to like expose these injustices and change everything. And then I talked to the people and what I found out is they know the the thing going in, like they aren't concerned about it as much as, you know, it would seem on the surface because they, mm-hmm. they're aware of it, you know. And so uh, my dissertation ended up actually being, you read some of it, I, re- I recall, mm-hmm. uh, my dissertation ended up actually just being a lot more about people's process after all was said and done, because I didn't really want to, you know, 
like as soon as I sort of figured out like, oh, there there's not I mean, there's injustice here, but it's victimless injustice, you know, like if that's yeah. that's a bad I mean, that's a bad way of thinking about it, but it's the creators know what they're doing and they're kind of okay with it because they know that it'll bring greater rewards if they play the game. Now, having said that, there is some amount of just changing the game or changing the system that we could do. Mm-hmm. But um, that's another dissertation for another time. Not the one that <laughs> I wrote. The one I wrote ended up ended up being about lives because what I did figure out was through these work for hire contracts. You know, the, these comic book people end up being gig economy workers effectively, and so they don't have health insurance. They don't have retirement set up. When you end up, you know, getting sick in the comic book industry, your solution is things like a like a GoFundMe or a raise funds through these uh, these various means that it's really sort of shitty that we... Oh, uh, is, is that okay on your pod? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's... It's, it's, it's really cruddy. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jess. You have to edit that if you do. Um, it's really cruddy that the, uh, these people who create all of these things for us end up going in a bad way because they don't have things like health insurance or basic incomes. So that was what my, that's what my, uh, dissertation ended up being about and less about like these unfair contracts in the way that I thought they were unfair. Mm. No, that's so interesting. It's an interesting topic. Having met some creators and being a little bit more active on social media with the comic world, you know, I, I see some of these conversations happening. I mean, with Kickstarter really taking off as a creative outlet for a lot of creators, I'm saying creative a lot. That's redundant. Yeah. Oh, man, you in the dissertation, like, you know, creative or you know that that some word variation. probably yeah, yeah some, uh, something on it like you know a thousand times in the thing you know <laughs> so. yeah that I I think if I was to really edit the entirety of your paper I would just be cross-eyed with how many times I would see the word creative but uh, yeah. it was a process picking a word about the you know like it, those of you who you know have written dissertations are probably in the same boat I am and you, when you hear me talk about this you're just like oh yeah. It, Duh. But uh, people who haven't written them, like picking a a sort of word that is that is the subject you're studying is kind of one of the hard bits of doing it. Because like I was like, do I want to talk about them as like creators, which is sort of like inherently political in its own sort of rights? Do I want to call them like, you know, something else that I made up? Do I want to, do I want to call them writers, artists, you know, whatever they are, you know, like, so one of the questions that I asked when I did, because my, my project ended up being an ethnography, uh, that was the other difference. So when I didn't want to do text. What I then did was an ethnography where I went and I talked to people and studied the people and the thing. The first question I asked them in each thing was, how do you identify in the industry? And, you know, I sort of let them pick like, okay, do you want to be artist? Do you want to be writer? Do you want to be creator? And that, that seemed a clunky solution to a problem, but (laughs) it's a solution. Yeah. It certainly stuck with your idea of wanting to study people. It, it allows them to kind of take a little bit of ownership. It's almost a rebellion against the work for hire ethic where you're like, yeah, you get to name who you are and what you do in the industry. Well, and, and when you, when you go into these sorts of things, 
because it's a, an academic situation. You can't mm-hmm. go in knowing what you're going to find. So you right. do have to have that open mind about it all. And that was, again, that, that, like I said, I thought I was going to go in and change the world. And I ended up, you know, changing my mind, basically. And that changed your world. Yeah, right. It was a good project. And it, I wanted to do a follow up to it with regards to the COVID stuff. And I mean, mm-hmm. I have started like fits and starts with this particular thing. I've gone back and I've talked to some of the people I talked to before and said, okay, how are you dealing with COVID now with like everything that sucks basically. Um, And I've only gotten a, you know, a a scant few replies, I think because people just don't want to talk about it or, you know, whatever, they're too busy, which is completely understandable. This would be, I sort of jokingly said in the line of the proposal to the project uh, for the COVID part of it, I was like, my, my old project, even though we didn't know it at the time, is about the best of times. Now let's talk about the same people in the worst of times, right. you know, because yeah. when, when you get hit with this like medical thing and the industry shutting down for months at a time and people lessening output and no opportunity to market your stuff at conventions and, and just like all of this, like a confectionery, basically. Of, of bad things for for these people in, in this industry. So, um, yeah. again, being in the Twitterverse and seeing creators and writers and artists talk about not going to conventions and things, it's actually kind of funny. I think a few of them appreciate it because they're like, great, I don't have to see people. <laughs> At the same time, they do talk about the loss of advertising, the loss of sales, and just kind of... So when you when you talk about particularly artists, a lot of the ways in which they make money off of their thing is go like sketches and things like that mm-hmm. at conventions. Yeah, selling so, original or, art too. Yeah. And so it ends up such that if they don't have the convention, you know, they work for this cruddy rate at Marvel and that's that. To directly monetize and have that slipped out from under you, like as far as the convention circuit goes, sucks. And I mean I don't know what they're saying in the Twitterverse at the moment, but the things that I've seen through articles and things like people are have a real fear that conventions are never going to come back like this might because conventions were kind of a starting to become a scary proposition anyway because of mass shooters and things. But that seemed like a, you know, an, an extreme like possibility, not not like a real probability in the way mm-hmm. something like COVID ended up being. I don't know if I can see that. I know conventions, depending on the convention in which city it's in, can bring in a lot of money for an area. Gen Con in Indianapolis, for example, is a huge thing for them. Uh, well, it's a huge okay. convention. So, so you have the... the I did... A, I did like, you know, a tiny amount of research on the convention circuit, so I don't know a ton about this. But basically, most of the conventions that are uh, large and medium size are run by a very few people. You know, the Wizard World sort of group and the people who put on San Diego, whose names Reed Pop, you know, and all of those uh, places uh, are all put on these conventions. And without that money, those places are going baroque. So, you know, sure, San Diego Comic-Con will exist in some form. Gen Con will exist in some form. But is it ever going to be 200,000 souls beating down the door like it has been, you know? Or is it going to end up being a much more modest thing? Mm. And can those companies support that more modest thing? 
uh, is a question. It's an open, it's an open thing. And there, like I said, there are creators that are a little worried about that because that's, that's a lot there. Yeah. you know, bread and butter, so to speak. That's a huge change in the, the economic environment. Yeah. That's a lot to kind of think about. And, you know, I think in our conversation and everything that I see, I think about Kickstarter a lot. I participate in Kickstarters. There's a sure. lot of great stuff and it's so nice supporting something creator owned and something they're enjoying to the point that they're willing to run a Kickstarter, which I imagine is no fun or easy feat. I mean, the amount of people I've seen do one and then go, okay, I'm taking a week off (laughs) away from my computer. Just the effort, even the effort I have to put in to try to get anybody to listen to an episode of this podcast. And I am not even getting any monetary or reward for it. So it's like super, (laughs) you know, low, but it just seems like, I guess that gig component where they just have to do all of this to maintain any kind of it's on that hustle. You know, I, yeah. I, as I was talking to some of the creators while I was doing the, the, the dissertation, you know, the word hustle came up lots of times. I bet. You know, it's, a, it's a, it's a hustle. You know, one of my favorite interviews was with uh, one of the, one of the people who was involved in the Rick and Morty comic book. Oh, yeah? And I was standing there and, you know, I, I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm doing this project. Do you mind if I interview you? And he's like, Oh no, go right ahead. And I'm like, look, like I'm respectful of your time. I realize that, you know, this is where you make money. So I'll get out of the way if, you know, somebody wants to whatever. And so while I'm standing there, somebody comes up kind of very tentatively looking at his, because they see the Rick and Morty and they, you know, like when you're at these conventions, you kind of gravitate towards the things you understand. So, I mean, that's, that's the attraction. Uh, You know, if, if you want to talk about a, a good way to do a stand at a convention, make sure you have recognizable things somewhere near you, because that's the things that people will sort of come toward. And so this girl came toward the, the Rick and Morty stuff and she's kind of very tentatively looking at it. And, you know, the, the creator I'm talking to is like, you know, Hey, can I interest you in anything? And she's like, my boyfriend really likes Rick and Morty, but I don't know kind of thing. And he says, he's like, he's like, well, you can tell your boyfriend that you almost met the, you know, the, the writer that creates the comic book for Rick and Morty. Like, (laughs) and I I was like, Oh my, you know, like, yes. Uh, but it was really one of my favorite interactions because I was like, oh, you kind of have to be out that way. You kind of have to be. And, you know, in particular with, you know, with Rick and Morty, it, it's a little more intense. It's amped up a little bit. But, yeah. you know, the, what I what I remembered about that sort of encounter was I was like, you can't be timid and still move product, basically, because when you're right next to a thousand things at these comic book conventions, your thing only stands out because people recognize it, mm-hmm. but you only have that split second to catch them too. We kind of have to do that in our retail world. I mean, it's just, oh, sure. it's just, um, it's not to give, to give these weird. guys, I guess a little background too. Like I've been involved in comic book retailing on the other end of it for, uh, for 11 years now too. So uh, absolutely, like there's er, the way you set up the stand, the way you end cap things. I mean, we jokingly have said, like just moving things around the store sometimes all of a sudden, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. What just moving a shelf can do 
or moving a book from I love watching you clean up the shelves. Like when you whenever I'm picking up my books and you're there and we step aside so we can just look exhausted away from customers and coworkers. Um, I love watching you move the books around because you'll see a hole. So of course you fill it, but watching you move the trades around that are on the new release section you're just like all right this one will sell we need to move this up this one needs to be here move this back here this Watch, one's watching me play it. tetris with the yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of fun um because it does happen like i've when we were uh, working in store together i would see it happen so oh, that's instinctual like when i'm doing all of that while we're talking like that doesn't that that doesn't even register as a like front thought in my brain. I'm just like, oh, this needs to be better sellable this way, you know, and that's it. Like staying here though, just because I, I was at that store on the floor for about three years, two three years, and I've been working in some form of retail for about fourteen now. Comics for only four. But it really, it just does become instinctual. If you're like, I can't see it. No one else can see it. And yep. half the time you're just like, it has to be visible. Yeah. I think it's really interesting when you're talking about creators have to push themselves. Like half the purchases in the store are based just on our excitement about a book or if we can name a book. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be, of course, like Marvel and DC. If you're already reading Marvel and DC, it practically sells itself. Like X-Men readers read X-Men. No ifs, ands, or buts. You don't have to really push hard. But with Image or with the smaller publishers, um, with some newer DC or um, Marvel characters and titles, like us just mentioning the name got people to go pick it up and read it, which I thought was really interesting. And it well, I learned I learned from the shop I worked at before the one I worked with you. Um, the the manager there was really interested in what you know what he referred to as taste making. He's like, mm-hmm. we are the taste makers. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever we're interested in is what we're gonna have is what we're gonna sell in the store. So this is why if you go into different comic stores, they all kind of have their own personality as well. Right. In part, in part because they're not a part of a national chain and they don't have to answer to anybody other than their sole proprietorship. Now, you could argue that as a monopoly or quasi-monopoly diamond, you know, mm-hmm. has that has has a bit of that mono sort of look about stores. But when you go into each one, it has its own kind of feel to it. And that feel is completely dependent upon its proprietorship, you know. And when you talk about, like, the differences, and I know you guys have talked about this on your pod before, but, you know, to, to sort of dip my toe in just for a second, the difference between a welcoming environment and a somebody being a gatekeeper or a shitty person yeah. behind the counter can really be the difference as to whether or not you're, whether you're interesting your audience or turning them da- turning them away, turning mm-hmm. them off, turning them down. Yeah. And it, it does make a huge difference. I mean, one of the things that has happened at our shop recently that apparently has, has also been happening nationwide, but, uh, you know, I didn't know it because I wasn't paying any attention to it was manga has come back. I was actually going to say a big change since I was at the store to now the new manager. It Our focus was really growing image whenever I was there because that's what I was eating. Yep. And by eating, I mean reading, eating mentally. Absolutely. But that was what I was consuming. That was what I was selling to other people. And then I left and new manager loves the weird stuff too. I respect that about him a lot, but he was really into manga more than I was. And so that's exploded. And I love that also. And so it, it's great going in there and just seeing and feeling that difference. And just, I really 
am excited about what he's done with the store too. I don't have a business mind. I never have. Mm-hmm. Like that's doesn't come instinctual to me in the way it comes to some people. It's one of the reasons why I have jokingly said I want to open up my own shop, but <laughs> I'd be fucking terrible at it. Oh, I'd be frigging terrible at it. Sorry again, Jess. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was telling somebody the other day, it's easy to gamble with somebody else's money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's that's what you kind of have to be when you're in one of these sort of comic store situations. Every every owner I've known of a shop has been some sort of gambler of a stripe, yeah. you know, and it makes sense. Like that personality makes sense for that. But I'm not that, you know, I've made bad bets. I've seen bad bets and how they pay off, you know. And it would take me one of those before I'd be devastated and I'd just shut it all down immediately and I'd be like, I can't anymore. Um, I do love watching you do a final order cutoff and just being like, it's the owner's money, it's the owner's money, it's the owner's money. (laughs) Well, it's even crazier than that when you get to like the complicated calculus that some of these companies want you to put into ordering their product. I mean, I'm sure you've seen me cuss at a final order cutoff more times than you've seen me even just be like, F it, you know? Yes, we, we'll, we'll take a gamble on it and it's it's not my problem basically but more to the point like is that where i'm like okay i have to order eight copies of this to get six copies of this thing to understand you know how many have we sold before are we going is there a long tail on this because that's a thing that as somebody who runs the business end of it i'm really terrible at tracking which is the long tail on a bunch of books is this image title going to sell in three months, even though it hasn't sold in month one or month two, you know, mm-hmm. or do I have to just cut it loose and like say, well, it's just going to, you know, live here, you know, cause, cause Mar- again, you, like you mentioned, Marvel and DC, Marvel and DC does have long tail, you know, yeah. there are people who come into the store once, you know, a month, once every other month, they come in and they pick up a stack of Avengers books or Avengers related titles and they leave very happy. Yes. But, you know, some indie titles don't have that same, you know, that same luxury, basically. Because, right. again, I don't sell it in month one or month two. An example of this right now that's going on. Sorry that I'm naming names here. Uh, Commanders in Crisis. Okay. I bet big. I bet big on that book. Like there was a one in 20 co- cover. I was like, I'm sure we could move 12 copies of this. I'm not sure we could move 20. And, you know, I sort of sat on it for a minute and I was like, well, I like the creative team. The preview art looks good. This is the kind of thing I think we could eventually move, you know, on a longer tail and it'll be okay. 20 copies plus the one cover came in and we moved three. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, Issue two came out, you know, a month later, as you would expect. And because of our ordering process... You know, there was no way of knowing that I wasn't going to sell near 20 copies of issue one. So I got 15 or 13 copies of issue two thinking, okay, this will sell now. This is how, you know, somebody will try issue one, but not necessarily hop on for issue two. So you you have to cut orders. This is how the industry were, you know, standard. It's called standard attrition. It's it's standard practice because people are going to try things, but they might not stick with them. I usually run about a 75% attrition rate, assuming that 75% of people who try something will stay on for it. And in this case, I, you know, I, like I said, I ran a 13 or 15 copy second book. It sold two. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I was right, you know, 66% attrition, but now we're stuck with those copies, you know, there's, they're not going anywhere. 
by issue three, I knew that we weren't selling it very well. So there was only four copies of issue three on the shelf, mm-hmm. you know, with the idea that, okay, well, maybe we'll long tail one person onto this book, obviously, since three tried it, basically. But by that time, that's got to be devastating to the creators, because if other shops bet like me, you know, now we're at 20% of what we were for issue one by issue three. Right. If they were running their economics a particular way, assuming that it would stay at a particular rate. Now, not everybody, again, runs their shop like that. Like I, I, without knowing anything about this book, you know, I bet big thinking it was going to do something and it didn't. At DC, Three Jokers did really well for us. That's a book that I actually under ordered, but through some wizardry behind the scenes, I was able to get some extra copies of. And we ended up moving more than I had anticipated because our standard at our shop, we can sell 30 copies of an event book at DC, depending on how, whatever. So I, I, you know, I said, okay, 35 on three jokers and we sold through the 35 on the first day. And then I got another, you know, 20 or 30 and uh, sold through those as well. So we, yeah, we moved, uh, we ended up moving something ridiculous, like 70 copies of that three jokers business. I also forget that we're actually a big store. Like it, it surprises me that we are a big comic store. Sure. I don't, I don't know why I think it's because I, I think of like the Barnes and Noble, you know, the massive retail book setting. Yeah. And then us, it shocks me, I think, to think that our numbers are kind of a bigger scale or maybe a medium scale. Uh, I call it medium. Medium scale. It yeah. Just, I don't know. The industry is smaller than I think and bigger than I think. And it's it's pretty, it's just all around impressive to me. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, well, the industry is small enough that you can meet the people in it, which is one yeah. of another, another thing, again, in my dissertation. This is unique. Like, if you make TV shows, like if somebody makes a TV show you like, Mm-hmm. When when does it occur to those people? I want to go meet the writer of that TV show, right? You, you know, and and so that makes this industry unique in that way as well. Ooh, the grander implications for that kind of it's fun to think about. It's fun to talk about long term success. You know, Marvel, DC, they have long term success. But I was just thinking about like the Bloodshot movie or the Invincible TV show that's coming out on Amazon and. You know, those books have been around for a very, very, very long time. I, oh, sure. I think some of those have been dollared out in our store before. And the fact that they've now gone on to this kind of success. And so I know Invincible is starting to sell again, if not physically, at least digitally. I've seen people reading it that way. And it's just kind of, to me, unexpected, wonderful, but also unexpected. I mean, the other media helps in that case. You know, again, if you've got a, you know, a TV show or a movie in the works, those things getting new life that way. It used to be word of mouth really helped these books, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but it's weird because you you get sometimes there's this Twitter echo chamber that will hype up things and that doesn't go anywhere. Oh, that's Yeah. It's odd because as somebody who studies this stuff and as somebody who's on the retail end, like it's easy to get sucked in by that. Oh my gosh, there's I've I, I've seen people talking about this book. I I think for me, Commanders in Crisis as an example of that. Like I saw there was hype, and I was like, okay, there's hype behind this book. Like people are interested, and and three whole people were definitely interested. Um, <laughs> three whole other people were on Twitter. Yeah, uh, it can happen. 
But I did see a lot of us, like when you mentioned word of mouth, it's definitely the retailer word of mouth that I think drives it. Fans find their creators in the comic world. Twitter users, Instagram users, they find the people that they want to look at, they want to talk to, whether it's community members or not. I've seen a lot of the same circles overlapping on, in the Twitterverse and they make recommendations to each other back and forth. They all kind of all talk about the same book at the same time because you got to stay current, right? Uh, but they also will follow their creators who they already liked. And so they will go ahead and buy the books that that creator's coming out with because they already like it. But no one would have read Bitterroot had I not told them about Bitterroot. And we got a lot of, I got a lot of people turned on to it because I was the connector between the comic knowledge and the person who had the money. Word of mouth is very powerful when you're in the shop. (laughs) So it's like... I think you're right. So one of the things we talk about in my sociology class is this idea of these agents of socialization, the people that affect you, right? The people that integrate you into society and things like that. And relative influence of agents of socialization make a big difference. So one of the things, you know, I say, well, your parents and your peers are the biggest influence on you, right? These are the people who are closest to you and they're, you know, then the next sort of level of agents of socialization are what I sort of think of as institutions, so, you know, the government telling you what to do, the, cool. you know, your, your medical people telling you what to do, like these, uh, schools telling you what to do. These, these people who are institutionally bound. All right. Yeah. And then, and then the third layer of agents of socialization is media and media has still has an influence on you, but it's significantly less than these other agents up the chain, basically. Right. Because of direct influence. Media is just sort of spitting it out there. You know, I hear, you know, I I sort of refer to Twitter as somebody on a corner, street corner with a bullhorn. (laughs) And like, how much attention are you giving that person with their bullhorn? You know, some people put more credence into some people on some corners or street corners, whereas other people just have dark alleys where they have their bullhorn, you know. Uh, But, you know, to that extent, oh, I heard somebody screaming about this on the street corner the other day. You know, versus like you standing in front of them as their quasi friend at the comic shop, letting them know this is the the coolest, hottest thing I've read, Mm -hmm. or just simply it's not hot, it's not cool, but I enjoyed it. You know, you might too. For a long time, there were DC had Vertigo, which had perennial sale things. Everybody who came into a comic shop, like basically had agreed that Fables is good book. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, Why the Last Man is a good book. Mm -hmm. Sandman's a good book. Hellblazer's a good book. It depends Mm -hmm. on what you're looking. And so Vertigo had this real good thing going for a while where it would just constantly move through trade paperbacks and old issues of those various comics. When Vertigo collapsed, like it, I think it hurt DC more than they had anticipated because having that perennial sales on those books like transferred over occasionally to like something like an authority or a, you know, a wildcats or something like that, that then transferred over to Superman and Batman, you know, yeah. um, some of those audiences didn't realize they were getting sort of short circuited over to that stuff, but like, Oh, this creator. And you mentioned the creators, right? 
this creator that was on Hellblazer wrote this cool story in in The Authority. Maybe I'll try that. Oh, you know, The Authority is just an, an adult version of, you know, Superman and Batman. Let me go try Justice League for a minute. This isn't so bad. This isn't as whatever, you know, like this isn't as bad to try as I thought it was going to be because this is hilarious because now I could totally say that Sweet Tooth, which is the comic that I started my reading with, is the reason I read Naomi, (laughs) (laughs) which unrelated creative teams. But it was just kind of like I picked up a comic about a kid with antlers in a post-apocalyptic setting. And then I read Naomi. who was like a new Superman. Um, yeah. And she was awesome. And so, dang it, Jeff Lemire, <laughs> you're the reason I read superhero comics. How dare well, you? No, yeah. Well, I mean, people complain about the sort of mono genreization of comic books. That is to say, all comic books are superhero comic books. But superhero is really just the veneer on top of oh a drama God. or a romance or an action yeah. book or whatever. I um, have a copy of Habibi which I think oh, is this sure. beautiful novel and it's this beautiful hardback, but it is in no way a superhero. It's a story. Persepolis, yeah. also just a, a beautiful story that just is in a graphic format. And when people want to talk about comics being about superheroes, I get really sad because they're missing out on this just oh, beautiful Oh, yeah. Range. I mean, absolutely. There's that stuff too. I shouldn't, I, I'm, I'm only dismissive of that stuff because I don't deal with it every day. That's fair. Not not because I'm dismissive of it because it's bad or because it's whatever, but it's just, you know, we sell one copy of Hibibi every, you know, three months or something. <laughs> you know, we, I sell Superman every day. So I don't, you know, that's, I didn't mean to sort of imply that that's, that's all that exists because one it's not is a little bit more approachable than the others. Superman is a little bit more approachable than Habibi. Well, you also have price point things. And this is one of the things that, you know, if you ever listen to our podcast, you'd hear me complain about regularly, which is the price point problem that I I 100% think Marvel has and DC has picked up the bad habit recently. People aren't going to try a book for almost $20. They just aren't. That is a that is a barrier to entry in the in this industry. When you have a less intimidating number like a twelve ninety nine book, like I think that works. But you know, Image had those nine ninety nine trades for a long time. They they've since had to dial back on that. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the nine ninety nine trades were all the time. Like every one of them, I would buy a copy of and give oh, that yeah. book a try. You know, because I, I was so like, many just from that approachable price point. You want me to if, try a book, and you need to not make it thirty dollars. If just, you if you hit me with a sixteen ninety nine or a nineteen ninety nine book, I'm a little more reluctant. Mm-hmm. You know, in particular, it better you know, be the, boy. You've heard me complain when I'm doing the orders too. Like I compare page counts to price points. If it's thirty bucks, it better have three hundred pages. And if it doesn't, I, you can't order it because you can't justify it to a customer. You know, I can't sell you a 200 page trade paperback for 30 bucks. You're going to look at that and say, well, that's really not enough content for my dollar, you know, unless it's like hardcover or fancy or something. But I mean, even then, like you carry one on the shelf. And when you carry one on the shelf of something, it's hard to restock that in a timely fashion to sell a second one or remember to because like, 
you know, that's that's a part of the retailing gig too. We're in the transfer between UCS for DC and Lunar because mm-hmm. of all the all of the business that's been going on behind the scenes there. Mm-hmm. And so I had decided a couple weeks back, I was like, okay, well, this might be it for our UCS distributor. I should probably pick up everything they have that we need. And so I went through all of the DC trades that, you know, needed restocking and all that stuff. And there were things I was shocked that we didn't have. We like we don't we don't have any copies of Dark Knight anything in the store. Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Strikes Back, Dark Knight Master Race. We none of talked it. about not having any Batgirl, New Fifty Two also, and we didn't have any like Gail Simone Wonder Woman or something. Yeah. Like we had a lot of stuff, or yeah. we didn't have a lot of stuff. That well, it, it counts on my crappy memory as the guy who orders that stuff to try and get to it. You know, right. and you know none of it's uh, how do you say. Uh, maliceful it's just there you know there are so many balls you have to juggle so and books. If, yeah. yeah if you if you if i if i lose batgirl new 52 in the in the shuffle like the only way i'm going to notice that is if a customer tells me hey do you have any any of this and i'm like oh yeah we should and then we don't and then i'm like i should order that yeah. <laughs> you know like, store has also changed a lot just for anybody who might be wondering yeah. why we for yeah local or wondering why we hadn't noticed that and we finally hit a tipping point where the owner i think finally believes that we need to be having more trades in graphic novels versus singles they do have more profit behind them they are easier to sell and i do think some of those older trades are kind of more interest to the Batgirl New 52 is something I'm just now picking up as a personal example. They're a lot easier to get in people's hands versus issue four of <laughs> a run that was done four years ago. So it's it's also better, I think, for us to have them on hand. And we finally at the store have been able to tip over to that point. Periodicals sell on Wednesdays and Fridays. Yeah. The graphic novels sell the other days. Is how I I kind of think about it. Like that's a good point. Somebody who comes in on a Tuesday afternoon is probably not a Wednesday warrior. They're not no, the person not. who, you know, they're not the person who wants to be, you know, sort of. And there are lots of readers who are not people who want to be on top of the newest, hottest thing while it's happening. They just yeah. want a good read, and yeah. so that Tuesday afternoon customer that wants to go go hang out at their house and, and read something quality, you know, you can turn them on to an image trade or, you know, an image run or an old Vertigo favorite or whatever. Fuck, I forgot to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you read comic books. What do you like? So for me, you know, I started, God, I started reading when I was eight years old or so. You know, how did you start in comics? Uh, and for me, it was uh, a spinner rack at a grocery store. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, every time I'd go to the grocery store, like I'd immediately dart for the spinner rack and like, you know, the parents were doing the grocery shopping and I'd be sitting there, you know, collecting comic books that I wanted. And I'd come up with like a, you know, a stack of 15 of them or something. Oh, I want all these. And they, they'd be like, okay, you can have like three, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, and so, so I'd have to pick my three, you know, favorites and it was all, you know, since I'm eight years old, it's all based on colors on covers or, you know, 
gimmicky sort of, you know, because yes. um, uh, because I am a product of 90s comic books, too. So it's all gimmicky or who had the most exaggerated artwork or what have you. Then uh, one time I was sick and my dad, like, you know, uh, took me to a, a comic book shop to, you know, go get go get a few comics to read while I was sick. And uh, basically, I never went back. Like, uh, like, why would you go to a spinner rack after you've after you've seen Shangri-La? You know, <laughs> and so so I, I I went to this comic book shop, and I at that time a twenty dollar a week habit was pretty pricey. So because each comic was a dollar fifty, so you can yeah. you can sort of figure out the math that I'm getting. You know, that fifteen that stack of fifteen now. Um, and then when I got my own when I got my first job my first job was down the plaza from the comic store that I shopped at. So on breaks and stuff, I'd end up like going over there in my uniform and being like, I need to get my fix, you know? Uh, (laughs) And I perpetuated the habit because of, you know, proximity basically. And eventually those guys asked if I wanted to work there. Uh, And, and I did, but you know, I did end up working there, but I ended up being their pog guy. Cause pogs were big and I didn't know a damn thing one about pogs. Uh, I, you know, the, it was basically like, look it up and price it or like go. This is where I learned a lot about comics retailing is going with your gut because they're like, well, if it looks cooler than something else that's similarly priced, price it a little higher, go with your gut. You know? And I was like, that's it. And they're like, that's it. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, like, there's no science to it. Um, what a magical era. That's yeah. the secret to all of this is there's no science. It's just... No, there's absolutely no... Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can you can Google around or eBay or whatever, but, but for the most part, you know, it's going with your gut, unfortunately, uh, for better or worse. And some of it is experience, but some of it is just like, is this going to be the thing? So I ended up working at this shop when you work at a shop, you get a discount. So this shop, my habit through the roof, you know, it used to be a $20 a week habit. Now it's a $20 a week habit plus my, you know, employee discount. Um, And we've jokingly said, you know, working at a store like that is dangerous because like, whereas a customer can come in there and walk by something a couple of times and have a hard time resisting it, walk by it 10, 15 times a day for weeks you know, yeah. you don't resist that thing at a certain point that you're thinking about. Like, eventually, you just sort of give in and get it. I just so, got a pop figure because of that because I've oh, been looking at it for months, and I finally you, was like, "Are you a pop figure person?" Not on purpose. It was a Pokemon one, so at least okay. I kind of separated that out. But it, Jolteon had been looking at me forever. Uh, <laughs> just, I don't. I own three Funko Pops and two of them were gifts. So like, Congratulations. yeah, no, that's, that's, as, but uh, I also don't have like, if I had a desk at a job or something like that, I imagine I would be a lot more. So I, my first or my second and a hat, like my second ish job was being the pog guy at a comic book shop that then I ended up leaving that store because uh, of personnel sort of conflicts And I was like, well, whatever, like that was fun. I did it once. And then I started working at a gas station overnights. And in order to like sort of keep myself awake overnights, I'd buy graphic novels at a at a different shop. And in talking with those guys at some point, I was like, I hate this gas station. I want to be out of it so bad. 
they're like, you seem to know a lot about what you're doing. Like, you know, do you want to work here? (laughs) And I was like, yes, yes, I do. And they're like, well, we can't pay you as well as you used to get paid at the the gas station. I was like, I don't care. Like I I spend almost all my paycheck here anyway. So you might as well, you know, so, so that's how I got the job at, at, uh, at the comic shop I worked at for five years. That's where I learned a whole lot about retailing, customer service, all of that stuff. And, and then eventually like, you know, I had to leave that job because I went away to graduate school, but uh, you know, chances are if I was still in that town, I would still be working there, you know? So. Yeah. um, It's kind of hard to break away from comic shops as someone who is still working for very, very part-time for the same shop you're working at. But why do I, but why do I love it? I guess was the question you asked, which had nothing (laughs) to do with what I said. Um, Right. I love it because I think that for me, reading a comic book creates a unique experience that, that you can't get in film or animation or anything like that. Okay, an example of this I had once was I was listening to a um, creator interview once, and he said, look, like between issues, you have a month to think about the answer to how this was going to come out. I had a couple of days. So the magic for me comes from like the the sort of wonder of it all. Where does where does that alternate reality go kind of thing? And you know, the cliffhangers at the issue, like how are they going to paint themselves out or how are they going to get themselves out of this painted corner that they're in? Yeah. Like like and I have a again, I have a month to think about it, speculate, do all the math, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. things like that. For me, that's you know, like, you know, you might have a week with TV shows or you might have a summer, like think of the most awesome cliffhanger you ever had on a TV show over, you know, over from a, from a season to season, you know, with comic books, you have that every month, sort of. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's kind of cool. Also the way in which you develop characters in comics is quite a bit different. You can, you can go tangentially in ways that you can't in sort of more linear media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for instance, if you talk about a character like Captain America or Superman, like these characters are, are kind of c- ciphers for who, whatever, you know, sort of thing people. And it, that's turned unfortunate sometimes, especially for Captain America. But, yeah. you know, to a certain extent, you can find something to relate to or something about these characters that, you know, uh, is good for you. And that character development doesn't happen. You know, if you have a brother on Supernatural or something like that, like that character is kind of fixed. Yeah. You know, I, I realize there's fan fiction out there and lots of it that can sort of wiggle <laughs> that fixed, that fixedness. But it, but comics don't don't have that, you know, yeah. because of the attention span and the memory hole of comic book people. Like I think that you can you can sort of unhinge a little bit of that. This is a thing uh, when I did my uh, thesis, what I found out about the orphan stuff in like how they adjusted the orphan narrative to meet every era of Superman or Batman. Is, is completely fascinating because like, really? well, okay. So when, uh, here you go, here's my thesis in 10 minutes, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll be careful. I'll be careful. 
when Batman and Superman first came out, like a reality of life was orphanages and war orphans and things like that, like the Great Depression era sort of orphans. So this is fresh in people's minds. So when they deal with the orphan narrative and these first sort of things, like they deal with it head on. They're like, this person's an orphan. They live in an orphanage and, you know, bad things happen to orphans, you know, like, and, you know, the first comic books are kind of very socially aware in a way that I would say even comic books today have a hard time sort of angling at Uh, mainstream, mainstream. Uh, Then in the 1950s, you have this stress on like, these things as commercial products. And one of the ways they kind of had to deal with that was by sort of kowtowing to families. So what you have is Batman and Superman, instead of being these lone orphan vigilantes, end up creating these families around them, right? Their own created families, but, you know, like, so they're no longer orphans, even though they're still orphans. Um, Found families. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could look at it as character growth, but you could also look at it as sort of a more insidious kind of like commercialization of that particular thing. In the 1960s, they they sort of towed the line a little bit. 1970s, it gets a little darker. 1980s, all of a sudden you're back to, you know, both of these characters being broody orphans again. It's because comics got dark, right? And so, especially Batman, I think less so. Superman still, to a certain extent, But one of the things they stressed in the Superman comics, and this is a super fascinating artifact of it. So it used to be, you know, uh, in the first uh, Superman comic, Superman was born on Krypton. They threw him into a a rocket. They sent him out into space. He landed in Earth, you know, he landed in Earth, specifically America, right? And this Kansas couple raises him with good Midwestern values. Then in, you know, in the 1980s, well, you know... (laughs) In the 1980s, one of the changes they made to the character was that he was never born on Krypton. He was put into a birthing pod, and then he was officially born when he landed on on Earth. Like he fell out of this sort of clone chamber, or you know, kind of. It's not called that, but like this clone. So he never stepped foot on Krypton uh, in the 80s comics with the idea of kind of creating this American citizenship for him mm-hmm. when he, when he's birthed into America. That's kind of insidious. Oh, but it's, it's, it's reflective of its well, era. Yeah. And so this is one of those things that like, particularly as an adult reader, like I appreciate about comic books is I'm like, Oh man, these are, you know, they aren't explicit time capsules, but in some ways they are implicit time capsules. Yeah. So this is one of the things about him being, you know, an orphan in the 1980s is that, you know, truthfully, he sort of never knew his parents, you know, he just knew of this place Krypton and he longed for it, but didn't know why. And it's, oh, it's, you know, these stories are very, uh, you know, eulogistic, (laughs) you know, and sappy. And I think in recent years, the they, they've paid less ator- attention to the orphan stuff. This is one of the things, though, as a reader that's cool to me is like, again, the character can have development over time that seems sort of mono monorailed, but is actually quite divergent. That is, yeah, I guess every time they've reset the universe, you know, it's... Well, Marvel's never reset the universe. They just reset with every creative team, you know? So, you know, in the case of Spider-Man, for instance, his, his orphaning, you know, 
his parents dying, you know, is much less of a big deal to him than Uncle Ben dying, for instance. Yeah. But or Uncle Aaron. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When you've got uh when you've Miles got Morales. Miles. Yep. In the movie at least. Yeah. yeah. No, it's the same. It's kind of the same Ian comic books a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but again, divergent paths, right? I mean it's it's got a lot the same story to tell but in different ways and in that case you have a a divergent and so that divergence as as somebody who was a philosophy major <laughs> you know in in as my undergraduate it, it says a lot yeah and i think i think that's what's interesting to me about comic books i have always loved your perspective on it because i'm just someone who loves to read stories um the history is interesting but i do feel very disconnected from it and that's what i really love about talking to you about comics because you give such a cool frame that i'm not gonna get from every joe schmo that i talk to you about comics because you've done such intense specific research on it and i love it you you know you sit there for you know 10 years thinking about something before you actually put pen to paper and write it you know it. <laughs> That just, 10 years maybe paid off. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it pays off in, in podcasts and, and uh, you know, uh, tell the job market that. <laughs> Working on selling myself too, but I get yeah, it. I know, I get it. Uh, but I've loved comic books for a long time. And the, the thing about it is, like, you know, my dad always thought I'd outgrow it. You know, he was waiting for, for the day that I would finally be done with and move on with my life. And then, and then, you know, at some point it started to pay the bills and he was like, okay, well, maybe he's not going to move on from it. <laughs> you know, in a way, in a sense, you know, I, I'm of a generation of whole, you know, people who just refuse to grow up for whatever reason. And we still collect toys and read comic books and watch cartoons and things like that. These, these very subjective ideas of growing up, but to a certain extent, like comics grew up with me. So I didn't need to move on. That's a good point. And I think we'll have, I have a lot of thoughts that you and I can have off recording. <laughs> well, we can, we can certainly do a follow up in a year or whatever, if you want to. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. But thank you for sharing. And uh, I'm going to cut this off so Jess doesn't have to record, like, go through everything. Thanks, Jess. Sorry. <laughs> this just feels so weird since you're not like Jess and I haven't recorded with not Jess. So- uh, I mean, she's, uh, you know, she is an interesting character in, in the cast, you know, as these things go. So I imagine that recording with her is quite uh quite simple oh it's very straightforward um (laughs) it's pretty great you were very you guessed good when you introduced us to each other so yeah it's clicked really well um well you know when when girls read comics makes it big and is like a million dollar podcast i want a producer credit all right of course of course that's what this is (laughs) that's what this is